It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Nance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Backbone Planning Partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Now let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host, Austin Peterson, here as always, coming to you live today from my home office in Gilbert, Arizona, where it is a, uh, what is it? It's a balmy 70 degrees, and uh, that'll be a little bit warmer than where our guest today is coming from. But before we jump into who the guest is and talk about that, if this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, We are a small business uh, podcast that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. My co-host and I, Landon Mance, are small business owners. We're also multi-generational family small business owners. It kind of runs through our blood, and we believe that the small business is the backbone of the American economy. And so about two years ago, we're coming up on our 100th episode here pretty soon. About two years ago, we started this fledgling podcast to highlight small businesses throughout the country and specifically their founders and owners that are doing important things, providing jobs and doing whatever they can to help prop up the economy in this country. So with that being said, today, we definitely have a tycoon on the show with us today. We've got Chris Rebsman uh, with Jupiter Sales and Marketing coming to us live from Park City, Utah, otherwise known as the Silicon Slopes. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Austin. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to to kind of jump into this. But before we jump into the business side of things and, and what you do day in and day out at Jupiter Sales, why don't you tell us a little bit about you personally? I know a little bit of your history and you've transitioned from the East Coast to the West Coast, et cetera. So tell us, you know, tell us about your family. Do you have any kids? Are you married? You know, where did you grow up? What brought you to Park City? What did you study in college? Whatever you'd like us to know about you personally. A loaded question. Um I grew up in uh, New York uh, from Huntington, grew up on Long Island, uh, spent probably most of my life on Long Island, currently married, child in University of Utah. We moved then uh, probably, then we moved up to Saratoga Springs, New York area. We lived there for about six years. And then we had an opportunity at the same time. My sister was moving to Park City as well. They had a second home here. Uh, housing crisis hit, and we just decided to get out of New York. It was running a business. It was either buy or get out. Uh, we decided to move and pick up, and we gave it about six months. We all lived in the same condominium in my sister's house. Kind of interesting with the dogs and the kids and my parents. And um, tight quarters, we made it work. So my sister is really the reason why I came here. And at the end of the day, I've always wanted to live in a ski town. I've been skiing since I was five. Grew up skiing in Vermont. I've uh, been doing it's always been a big part of my life. Moved, we so we I convinced my wife to move out to Park City for about six months, and my son was in fourth grade at the time. And honestly, thirteen years later, here we are. So grew up in New York, live in Park City, love every moment of it. Love to ski, love the outdoors, just love the peace and quiet and the tranquility of you know being in the mountains and the beauty. 
this is home. No, that's awesome. I mean, you know, many of our listeners know this, but I, I grew up outside of Park City. I spent a lot of time in Provo and Salt Lake City. Uh, I got a master's degree from BYU. So I've got a lot of ties to Utah. Um, my nephew plays football at the University of Utah right now. And so, you know, it's 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 something that I, I spend a lot of time in Utah for that, but mountains in general. I mean, my wife and I just spent the weekend in Sedona. Mm-hmm. Any any chance we have to get out into the mountains and in nature, we're there for sure. Yeah. It's definitely a certain way of life. And it's always, you know, even down in Salt Lake when we have the clouds and the pollution kind of collect around the canyon you know we're always we always seem to be just high enough to 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 avoid that um this past summer we had some of the inversion come up but it wasn't too bad so it's just you know people say that they come to park city in the summer and stay for the winter um i came for the winter and stayed for the summer so i'm kind of opposite but it's it's just from the school systems to the opportunities. Um, it, we're kind of, Park City is kind of like, I consider it to be almost like the Texas of Utah. It's a melting pot of people from all over the world, all over the country. You know, we've got people from Long Island, we've got people from New York, we've got people from Florida, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, Northwest. No, I mean, it, it's, I'm 10 minutes from the base of Park City and, you know, seven minutes from the base of Deer Valley. I mean, it's it's really great, and when we want to and really get it get the skiing on, we head over to Alta and Snowbird. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point because they're you know I'm a bit biased. I mean, I I grew up snowboarding at Brighton, right, mm-hmm. and and some at Snowbird, but Brighton was cheaper, so I spent more time at Brighton. Um, but the the skiing is definitely better, like you mentioned, at Alta than than Deer Valley or, or Park City Resort. Yeah, Alta is our favorite. Yeah, for sure. We've been to Brighton, we've been to Solitude, both great mountains. But you know, when it's just myself and my son, it's it's Alta. Yeah. Yeah, I don't blame you. And just that area in general, uh, you know, my wife and I and our kids, you know, they're grown now, so they don't spend nearly as much time with us uh over the summer. But we have our motorhome and we take it up to, to Utah uh-huh. and we spend time in, you know, Midway Deer Creek, you know, reservoir area for most of July, just to get out of the heat here. And, and again, be right there in that great area of the world that has just miles and miles and miles of hiking trails and mountain biking trails, et cetera. Yeah. I don't want to hype it too much because we got enough people living here already. <laughs> yeah. And it does, it does continue to grow for sure. It does. So. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so much building going on. I don't know where the people are going to come from. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's, it's just such a business friendly state, right? And so mm-hmm. it, it's for those reasons that businesses large and small continue to kind of relocate to Utah and people are moving from all over the country, Washington, Oregon, California, you know, Nevada, everybody's kind of moving to Utah and enjoying, you know, being there now. The winters can get rough. That inversion layer is difficult for guys who struggle with breathing issues the way that I do. But other than that, man, I tell you, it's a great place to live. It is. It is. It, it's, it's within Utah itself. You know, it's this is to me is kind of home base just because of, you know, our hobbies and everything else. You know, I've been down to the St. George. I've been to Provo several times. And so I, I, I 
every time I come back, it's just, this is kind of attracts me, you know, from our livelihood right now and what we do. It's just a perfect area. Yeah. Yeah. Never thought I'd say that, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tell you, it gets you, it gets you away from the larger city. It gets you away from the crowds, but it's close enough to the Salt Lake airport that if you need to go anywhere, you can get there quickly and easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, sure. it's, it's, there's just been a ton of um, upswing to it. There's some negatives to it, but I mean, you know, I mean, there's negatives to everything. It all depends how you look at it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, let's jump into the business side. So Jupiter Sales and Marketing, tell us, tell us what it is that, that you do and what your uh, background was that led you to starting Jupiter Sales and Marketing. I've been in the consumer products industry for 32 years, done everything from starting at store to level doing store service and running a company. Um, Jupiter Sales and Marketing just really started by accident. My story is I really took my first year off here for the winter, got my 80 days of skiing in, and really just enjoyed myself. You know, in the interim, you know, Utah has kind of transcended, transitioned quite a bit in the last five, seven years. And when we first moved here, the opportunities just weren't here what they are today. And at the time, in addition to financial crisis, you know, back in New York and back in the, you know, the core of what was going on, money was not available. And so I just started, Jupiter became um, kind of like a fractional vice president of sales, sales manager for companies, go out, hire a sales team and, you know, kind of move on to the next company. And it just kept running on that for about three or four years. And Jupiter was um, probably too long, but for about three years, it was probably more of a hobby than a business. You know, it just paid the bills and just kind of really kept me busy. I mean, my mind was still outside. And, um, you know, I just couldn't get enough of it because when we first moved here, I mean, we've got, we had 700 inches of snow. And then we wound up the following year with 500 and change. And I mean, it's, it's, that's like me sitting behind a desk. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> Hard so, to stay focused with that much snow. It was. It was. So probably five years into Jupiter, four years actually, decided to make it a business. Um, built out a little bit of a team. Really kind of defined our role as not just from a, a vice president. You know, the fractional term, we, we run completely, I think, in my eyes. And we run differently. We're a very mature company these days. But after five years, I started to make it a business. And this is what I wanted to do. I did enjoy working for myself. I worked for myself in the previous position. And, um, you know, I, I just wanted to excel in the consumers. But, you know, it took time to kind of build. Uh, we worked with various companies. We are largest. We worked with, we work with currently and have worked with Fortune 500 companies all the way from startup. So we go from startup to Fortune 500 companies. You know, we've sold into Walmart, Target, and all the major retailers because we understood the process. One of the things is that what I did know was the process of how to get product on shelf and kind of really avoid the obstacles because there are people that go chase it, don't understand the process and the costs that are associated with it. They get into a retailer next thing you know, in 90 days they're out of business because their cash flow is just zero, just from chargebacks, not following procedures. And it's really just the common sense part of a business to really kind of flow it through. I mean, creating a product is one thing, but actually taking it from there to the next 
you know, several steps, it, it's it's a much different ballgame. Um, and honestly, it's it really, if you don't know the business, you, you can get into deep trouble. There are people who have wound up in debt millions of dollars just because they borrowed, borrowed, borrowed. But they, yes, they didn't get in front of the buyer. They were so busy on building their product, you know, the MVP, and just spent all this time tinkering instead of really just taking it forward and kind of getting, you know, to the next step. Anyway, so that that's what we have. What's what I was bringing was the experience from a, you know, from an independent perspective. We weren't married to anybody from a company. And then about six years into it, seven years into, no, actually about eight years into it, it's already been that long, came down with um, a blood cancer. So the blood cancer kind of stopped the business and it was kind of some things had happened. Um, luckily, Huntsman's right down the street from me and that probably saved my life. So the cancer kind of pivoted the business into a different way for a couple of years. Um, we just kind of, I just finished treatment about seven months ago and, you know, kind of pivoted and it kind of made me think of, you know, we tried the partners things, you know, a couple of times and, you know, staying afloat. It was, it was a difficult process to keep Jupiter going and kind of focus on my health at the same time. We kept it going. Uh, when I came back is kind of when I really sat down and looked at the business, kind of looked at what we were doing wrong, what we we're doing right. Had a lot of experience, you know, you know, when you come back from, from cancer or any kind of life altering situation, you know, you, you really start looking at things completely different. Um, you become less selfish. You know, you kind of look at where you're headed, where you're going. But in this instance, I never really looked at my business strategically. And, and I know this sounds insane because I'm supposed to, but I wasn't doing it all right. And, you know, the funny part is in the last two years, Jupiter has excelled not just in revenue, but has excelled in knowledge, abilities, connections, channels. There is no official partners. It's really a sole proprietorship now, which probably it should have been. I've got some key employees that really helped me drive the business. I got one who's my right arm, but I can't thank enough. Um, you know, David Neely's been with me for several years and, you know, he's, he's turned out to be a good friend, has kind of kept me, has really helped me organize the business because that's he's an operational financial player. But we really have excelled probably the last three years and really kind of dynamically, you know, we, we haven't done any advertising. It's all been word of mouth. You know, we have a, I have to say that we built a very solid sales team network. We're in every building. You know, as far as not with product, but it's just the relationships that we have now that we didn't in, have in totality before. We've got a great team at every major retailer in the U.S. and regional. We're selling mass grocery specialty, um, QVC, HSN. Um, there really isn't a retailer or, and or e-com that we can't touch or at least get a meeting. The other side of the business is that people have been after me as far as trying to source and do product development. We're now officially able to source product from both China and India effectively and efficiently. The China piece, um, we were doing something. We pulled out when all the chaos was going on. There's still a lot of chaos. But we have partnered up with someone else that can actually run that piece of the business. We're, we're strong as we're very strong in India. We've created some very special relationships in India. And the people we work with, you know, people have had trouble 
we've lucked out are very easy and effective to work with. You know, it's all about execution at the end of the day. I, there's a lot of things that have happened in between. You know, I didn't really go through the the whole rigmarole of Jupiter, but Jupiter has matured nicely into a 360 degree solution for any consumer products company. And it could be anything from a startup to a Fortune 500 company. You know, we're working with some of the largest brands in the US right now and globally. You know, it's just interesting kind of helping them and trying to see the light. And yes, we're, we're, we are aggressive. We are very direct. We don't, I, I'm not one of those people that really like to sugarcoat things because it just, it, it wastes time and resources. And yeah, if, if, if we're getting to a sale and someone gets in the way, I mean, we have to overcome those challenges. And yeah, it gets tense at times, but our purpose is what we're hired for. And, you know, we're, we're expanding our abilities from sourcing product development. We have operations, we have a CFO on staff. We have designers that we outsource and work with that are very good. We have a marketing team and social media. So at this point in time, we still have a way to go, but Jupiter is really set up to help retailers, not just suppliers or manufacturers. We're also here to help retailers. And what does that really mean? A retailer today is working with a random number, 50% of the staff that they have. You know, we'll take, you know, a Walmart. The more you do for the buyer from a design, specking out, gap analysis, SWOT analysis, price, you know, variabilities in the market. The more you do for them, the more they're going to lean on you in the future. And there's there are people that are out there doing it. There's large rep firms and everything else, but we're doing it. I, I, I feel we're doing it differently. We're doing it more strategically. We're not just throwing products against the wall. Yeah, sometimes you do just to see if you can get a, a kind of some feedback on direction over a buyer sense. But, you know, comes down to numbers now. I mean... They're, the buyer ROI is now to the square inch instead of the square foot. Every centimeter of that shelf space has to be performing or you're out. Um, retailers in grocery, I'll give you six months. If you don't perform in six months, you're out. Retailers will give you a year. If you don't register in a year, you're out. I mean, that's just the fact of the business. Um, each retailer works the same. I don't care if it's grocery, mass. I'll argue that fact all day long. The numbers? Yeah, they don't shake out the same. But at the end of the day, you still need, after EBITDA, you still have to work on that 7 to 10%, right? So a retail is retail. You know, companies, to me, get very hung up on the, on the grocery. You know, you have to have grocery experience. You have to have mass experience. I understand that you need to know how the operations of that particular retail works. But one of the things that we bring, and so because of being so diversified, we understand each of the channels, we work with each of the retailers, and we understand the process and help companies avoid the nightmare and the costs. Yeah, well, you know, there are a lot of things that I want to unpack there, but first and foremost, congratulations, sound like clean, clean bill of health about seven months ago in remission at this point. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. So before I unpack some of the things that that you went through from a business standpoint, and I think there are plenty of things to to talk about there, um, you mentioned how it kind of changes your outlook on life when something big like this happens, right? Whether it's cancer or anything else. So Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to put you on the spot and say, what, what, what was the one big thing that came out of that for you to, as a, as a new way to look at life going forward? Yeah, that's a really good question. I've been asked that question several times. And honestly, it was just to look at life a lot differently, be thankful for what I have. Because when I went into this with the cancer, I had no idea which way I was going. You know, we went in, I went into a, um, a study. I went to a non-FDA uh, study that, that Huntsman just happened to be working on. I had no idea what, what I was getting into. So when I got out of it, and it takes a while to get rid of the, you know, for people that have been through chemo and everything, you know, they can attest that it, it takes time to kind of get the head back in. Chemo brain is a real thing. And I had it for an extended period. And I, I can tell you one thing dynamically from our business is I looked at it and I really said to myself, which I probably shouldn't repeat on radio, but I really said to myself, what are you doing? You know, what is your purpose? What is the why behind this business? You know, what is your process? You know, it, it's, it's not just about latching on to a company and then taking that company and just drive sales. We have so much more to offer as a business. And I saw the market is, and the market is changing as we speak. You know, you see the people resignate, they call it the grand resignation or whatever. But people like us are hard to find. You know, you can go out and hire a dedicated employee, but people that can actually handle the, you know, the minutia, that can handle the process, cross channels, cross products. Honestly, that's hard to find, you know, with our experience. I mean, you know, David was from, man, one of the larger nutraceutical companies in globally. You know, he worked in Europe. It's just the knowledge. And one of the kind of taking a step, we also worked in a um, incubator here called Pando Labs. And Pando Labs is an incubator for entrepreneurs. That was a great learning experience. We got to work with VC, you know, private equity firms and understand, you know, that side of the business. And it wasn't that we had to go through class. It was just basic understanding of how a business works financially and then working at, you know, operationally to sales and the cost of sales and understanding the integral parts of mechanical side of how a business works. One of the things that I, best job I had was when I was at Quadrant working, you know, running the company. That was the best MBA anybody could get. I could go to Harvard and get an MBA and be really book smart. But man, taking a business, a small business, medium-sized business, being the landlord, being HR, being in charge of benefits, you know, negotiating with suppliers, building out. I mean, we did everything and we rebuilt that. Thing. I mean, you know, you don't learn that on the street. You don't learn that in school. And it's just that alone associated with what I've been doing. It took me a while to get it going, but it just kind of transcended into running a business on it. Because I look at my business today from a strategic place. You know, we look at it, what can we do? How effective can we be? operationally does this make sense can the team handle the extra business you know the extra load because in addition to what we're doing we're also ramping up some of our own products too we're developing some of our own products we've got that going on so we, it's almost like a shell game and, and it's 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 interesting so we're running on all cylinders but we get it done we're efficient we don't have a we don't have a, a big staff we get things done because we know how to. It's just it's just experience. 
the last thing I can say to that is, you know, running a small business, and I'm sure you can attest to this, Austin, running a small business is harder than running than running a large business. I worked for a large company. What I'm doing right now is much more difficult than I, when I was, you know, a senior sales executive for a major company. Yeah, no, I, I've been there too. I've been in management roles with large organizations and I agree with you. I mean, the, the resources that you have at your fingertips in a large organization and all the different layers of people who do all the different things compared to you having to wear way more than one hat mm-hmm. as a business owner, it, it's not for the faint of heart for sure. That's true. So, yeah. and, true. And I'll tell you, you know, one other thing that you mentioned there with the MBA. So I do have an MBA. And, and it's not that it's not that I didn't learn things in the business, you know, in the MBA program at business school, because I did. I mean, there were some things that I learned along the way, but I had already been running a business for several years, probably close to a decade, actually, by the time I started business school. And so I had the experience, but, and so I was able, if I learned something new or was reminded of something, I was able to put it into practice the very next day, which was great, first of all. But what I say about MBA programs is it's not necessarily the education that's most valuable. It's the network of people that you go through business school with. Oh, I I, I agree. And you know, it wasn't a dis- It wasn't meant to be a disrespectful comment. It, it's just some of us just can't afford the MBA, right? So, I mean, it's sometimes it's just the life of hard knocks, and yeah. you know, you've got to learn it one way or another. Either you do it, you know. And there are a lot of people out there that can't afford the MBA that are probably, you know, I mean, it, it comes down to I just wasn't able to do it, um, and I and and I knew myself. I, I'm not a student. You know, it never was. I have to see it. Once I see it and understand and do it, then it's a different story. Understand. I mean, many people are out there very smart with very, from, you know, great colleges with MBAs. And yes, they're successful. But, you know, I didn't have that opportunity. Yeah. No, and I I didn't take it as a disrespectful comment. I don't think any of the listeners would have taken it that way either. I, I just think that it's important to point out that there are other ways to get the same education. You're learning it day in and day out. And you've got great people like David working side by side that's bringing other things to the table that you don't necessarily have, things you don't understand, right? And so he teaches you those things and you do the same thing for him, right? I mean, even though he had certain experiences, there are certain things that you have that he didn't have and and together are better together. Yep, and he can put up with me on top of it. <laughs> That's right. So, um, so let's talk a little bit more about the retail supplier relationship because I think you hit something that's that's big there that a lot of people don't really take into account. Right? The probably one of the top reasons, if not the top reason, that you guys are finding success is that you've figured out that you've got to balance the supplier side and the retailer side and by making the retailers buy, the retail buyer's job easier you then get responses right they call you back they respond to your emails they look at your products as opposed to somebody who's sending them you know cuz you know they're receiving hundreds of products pitches a week you know if not more to get through but they know that when it comes from Jupiter okay we should take a look because they've done their homework 
It's likely a good product. It's likely something that fits with us. Let's take a look. Yeah. I mean, it's also part of the team. It's the extension of the guys that are on the ground and girls that are, uh, you know, I couldn't do it without them. You know, there, there are a number of people I work with right now that are the salespeople that are just phenomenal. It's not just all Jupiter. They're part of the team as well. You know, Jupiter's more on the, uh, yeah, on the front side. We're also on the back of the curtain, you know, helping the organization, preparing that. You know, it's kind of funny when it's, there's that, there's that connection. And you're absolutely right. From supplier to retailer, a lot of suppliers feel that the cost of having a sales team or an operations team in hand is just taking away from their bottom line. That is completely false. You know, they add to the bottom line. Is there a cost of sales? There always is and there always will be, whether you do it or I do it. But, you know, it's kind of like um, taking the shortcut, you know, from point A to point B and take, instead of taking the long road. It, it, it's You can take Route 66 to go across the country or Route 80. You know, you want to be on the highway. You want to be on the interstate. That's that's kind of a way to kind of an analogy that kind of needs to think about that. And we can we actually save our suppliers money when they really think about it. Because to your point, I mean, they listen to our team, myself, and then our sales team that are actually effectively working with the big lots, the WalMarts of the world. They're listening because they these teams are well respected. I try to be as we are. You know, but we're we're part, we insert ourselves into the organization. So it's, and then we just kind of bring it out to our team. We streamline operations, if that makes sense as well. You know, and a lot of people don't realize that there's a cost of operations and you can keep spinning your wheels. And yeah. it goes back to how people wind up in the debt situation they're in. Yeah. But, yeah, would you would you say it's fair to say that that's that's really what's most important to a retail buyer is that you make their job easy? Oh, easily, yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You got to be value add. A buyer's not going to deal with you if you don't add value. Yeah, they know that there's commission built into the cost of goods and or cost of sales. You're getting paid something. You've got you know they know that, but if you don't provide a, an efficient value add. They're not going to deal with it. Yeah. It's just that simple. Yeah. All right. So there, there are a lot of things I want to dive into, differences in categories, overall market changes, what the future looks like, what supply chain issues have been like for you guys and for you know retailers and suppliers in general. But let's take a quick break. We'll have it. We're here. We will hear a call to action for our audience and then we'll come back and, and talk some more about that. Thank you. Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, Please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. All right. Welcome back, Tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. We've got Chris Repsman with Jupiter Sales and Marketing uh, on the show with us today. And we've 
we've already unpacked so many things, Chris, but um, first of all, if our, if our listeners are watching this on video on YouTube, Chris went ahead and picked up his New York Yankees cup during that break and made sure he took a drink of that and, and that the Yankees logo was showing since I've got my Red Sox gear behind me here the whole time. So don't think I missed that, Chris. All goes back to Babe Ruth. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. So I am a Red Sox fan, but I don't know if we talked about this in the prequel at all or not, but I'm a baseball fan first and foremost. I just I just love baseball. I will watch a baseball game anytime, anywhere. I've actually got a picture right over here on the on the wall. There's a picture of Mickey Mantle. There's the 51 World Series with the Yankees and the Dodgers. I'm, I'm a big sports memorabilia guy. But baseball is my number one. I would I would literally watch a game anytime, anywhere. Yeah, no, I I grew up with baseball. You know, it's I was a Yankee fan, been a Yankee fan forever. Kind of just I was always in New York City, you know, Ranger, Yankee, well, Giants. We'll leave that one alone. But um, yeah, I Knicks. Yeah, I've been a Yankee stadium, not the new one. Um, you know, kind of the game has kind of changed a lot. Um, and once we moved here, I kind of lost touch. You know, we, yeah. we, we don't always get every Yankee game, but I still try to stay on top of it as best as I can. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so I actually haven't been to the new Yankee stadium either. Um, on my 30th birthday, so I'll, I'll go ahead and date myself. I was in New York and I caught an afternoon game Yankees Orioles at the old Yankee stadium, but it happened to be the day that they broke ground on the new Yankees. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, about 15, 16 years ago, I I was there on that day. And then of course, you know, it was my 30th birthday. This is an indication of how good of a wife I have. So friend and I, you know, we took the red eye to New York, saw that afternoon Yankees Orioles game. And then we took the train up to Boston and the next day saw Yankees Red Sox at Fenway. And then we flew that afternoon to Chicago and saw Cubs Cardinals at Wrigley. Nice. So Very nice. Yeah. The big, the big three stadiums all in on successive days, which was, it was great. I was That's dead awesome. when we got home, but it was awesome. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. No, Fenway Park is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great place to catch a game for sure. So it is. It is. All right. So let's I'll, get, let's I'll give you that. Sorry, go ahead, Chris. I said I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah, I, I tell people, you know, what's unique about Fenway, and you do see this at Yankee Stadium too. So I'll give you give credit here, is that there are a bunch of people in the park. First of all, everybody in the park knows what's going on with the game, right? Mm -hmm. So they're cheering at the right time and, you know, all those kinds of things, you know, two strikes or whatever, but there's a good portion of fans that literally sit in the stands and score the game in a scorebook. Like that's how big the fans are in, in Fenway. And I've seen it, you know, once or twice at Yankee stadium too. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's talk a little bit, kind of about what's going on in retail today, right? So obviously you're not just working with the big box retailers because there's so much going on in e-commerce now and that and that category kind of grows every single year. So, you know, what is it that you guys are seeing specifically about the future of that? 
And then follow that up with what you've seen supply chain wise, how you guys have overcome that. Sounds like you outsourced for some, you know, something in China because they were more equipped, I guess, maybe to handle the supply chain or the uh, the importing there. So let, let's talk about those two things, if you don't mind. Yeah. So e-commerce, to touch on that first, yes, it is a growing business. Amazon has, you know, you can't knock it. They have developed a, an awesome business. Uh, I will say the retail is not their money maker. It just it, it's just the logistics first. They're a warehouse company to me, and yeah. that's where they make their money. They're not making money on buying and selling product. Uh, the cloud and everything else they're doing that's kind of their main business per se. And the retail part of it is really I think happened by accident. But Amazon is Amazon, right? Where a lot of people will get confused. It's easy to get a product on Amazon, but you can also get lost in a sea of pages. Yeah, we have products on Amazon. Um, you have to spend to earn. So you can spend a million dollars in advertising if you're doing five million. You know that that's what you have to do, and to drive that business. You know there are several e-commerce retailers that are out there. It's flooded. Um, e-commerce to me has replaced the Sears and JCPenney's catalog. That we remember. And honestly, I mean, that's kind of what replaced the business. Yes, there's continued growth in e commerce. Um, there will be an up, you know, it'll keep climbing because people like the idea of ordering online. I get it. But the business is still brick and mortar. You know, all of these disastrous articles of brick and mortar going down, you know, consolidation and everything. The retailers that went out of business were just run inefficiently. They were leveraged to the hilt, whether it was by venture capital or put just too much debt on their books. But the ones that went out were just inefficient. They were having trouble even before COVID hit. Um, COVID has changed quite a bit of how people do business. Supply chain-wise, anyway, back to the retail part, there are reasons why retailers are seeing the growth that they're seeing. Um, part of it has to do with the pandemic. I get that. But um, when stores opened back up, the strong retailers were flooded. They can't find enough product. Demand just went through the roof. And we weren't prepared for it. It's not that, you know, we do run out of raw materials, and I get that. But it's like the auto industry. They canceled all their little chips for their cars. And now we can't get cars because they don't have those chips. And, but that's on the fault of the automotive companies. It has nothing to do with anybody else. So people got nervous and they started canceling the orders. And, you know, factories started pulling back. I mean, that's exactly how it happened. Yes, there's, there are shortages of raw materials, but we're playing catch-up. It's kind of like when you pull back, it takes twice as long to come back, you know, into kind of a, um, a strong market as far as supply chains. So a lot of it had to do with, and I, and I you know, think of it as, um, you know, the container companies, they saw an opportunity to make extra money. But that's how I looked at it. They controlled it. Um, you know, but we were shut down. The pandemic had shut the world down. And we've been playing catch up ever since because demand was a lot higher than anticipated. You know, everybody thought that there was going to be misery. You know, there's been consolidation in retail. There's been merges happen. I think it's a good thing for retail. You know, there are... The strong retailers are opening up more stores. 
Dollar General started a new chain that's doing really well. Costco continues to excel. Walmart continues. Target. The strong people will continue to be strong and grow. You know, Bed Bath & Beyond, I don't think they'll ever go anywhere. They're just, I think they're in an identity crisis right now. Grocery retailer, very strong, you know, and they continue to grow. So supply chain has been a problem. And how we've handled it is just kind of some orders got canceled. You know, we lost a lot of fourth quarter business. We just couldn't hit the dates. So took it on the chin. It was pretty painful. And it wasn't just a little business. It was a lot of business. So I bet it's people are doing things differently. They're ordering further out. Even the off-price retailers like TJ Maxx, Ross, uh, they used to order just-in-time inventory of what was sitting around. Now they're starting to plan out. So the, the business is, is changing because there aren't any goods just sitting around anymore. From time to time, don't get me wrong, there is. When there was a bad run or you know someone canceled. So that always happens. The big thing that the pandemic really did is taught businesses how to run leaner and how to run more efficiently. The companies that could adapt doing really well. Companies that haven't, it's another problem. You know, they just couldn't pivot fast enough. The big brands couldn't pivot fast enough. And I mean, all the respect to some of our clients, I mean, they just couldn't pivot fast enough. Um, mm. And we're still paying for it. And um, the ones that I have are gaining market share. So in the food industry, in particular, what has happened is in the grocery is the bigger boys just couldn't, because of the layers we were talking about before, they have to, you know, they have to get signed off on every step of the way. Whereas someone who is a, you know, five, $10 million company who has maybe two layers versus a hundred, you know, they could pivot. They took the, they took the market share. They took yeah. the shelf space because they could react faster. Yeah. So. You've got to yeah. be able to faster in today's market. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that that's an excellent point. You know, that the 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 businesses that understood that they could run leaner than they were running before, and if they needed to, depending on what it is that they did, is as far as you know the product that they sold or products or the services that they provided, and how they needed to pivot based on what was going on. Right. I mean, I think just in in my industry. You know, I I used Zoom and WebEx before the pandemic hit, but so many of the people in my same industry had never Mm -hmm. used it. They were so used to driving to see somebody or having their clients come into their office and they didn't know what to do. You know, they weren't sure how to how to continue to stay in contact with their clients and to, you know, to do things differently. And so you're right. It's about being willing and able to adapt for sure. You know, in our business, it's a little bit different, um, you know, versus the financial services and or um, an online, you know, for hardware and things of that nature. You can do more of it virtually. Where we get stuck is when we go through what we'll call um, product line reviews. So at a retailer, product line review could be, let's just call it beverages, just for sake of argument. Um, a lot of retailers have... A, a miniature store in their buying offices. So they actually can visually see what the planogram looks like. We're a big touch and feel business. And when you can't touch and feel sometimes, that is probably our biggest hurdle that we have to overcome. And sometimes that's hard. 
was doing the line review on this way, it is difficult. It is. And, and we've been pretty successful at it by sending samples and try to allocating resources to, to do that. But yeah, for us, for our business, sometimes it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah, it, it takes an adjustment for sure. And, you know, the supply chain thing, I'll just I'll just add, it, it kind of caught me on my heels or surprised me a little bit where, you know, I wasn't surprised overall from a supply mm-hmm. chain standpoint. I'm not an economist by any stretch, but I do understand how an economy works and, you know, importing and exporting supply chain, all those sorts of things, supply and demand. But I was in Utah probably six weeks ago or so, and I could not find any windshield washer fluid anywhere. And it had been raining and the roads were dirty and you, you had to have it, but yeah. it, it did not exist anywhere. So it's just, yeah, it's exactly what you're talking about where they slowed down the orders. People aren't going out. It's not needed. Hey, it's summertime. People don't need windshield washer fluid right now anyway. And then they were caught with their pants down when it was time to actually have the shelves stocked with their windshield yeah. washer fluid. And now we're chasing it. Yeah. You know, we're just, we're just running as fast as we can to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. I went to several places and could not find it anywhere. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I mean, we're catching up. Uh, Supply chain's gotten easier out of China. It's much easier from what we have found out of India. I thought that U.S. manufacturers would scale. They have, not to the degree I expected. So I, I, a lot of that could be relatable to um, lack of people. You know, so I mean, the factories around here, well, not around here, the consumer that do we do make products in the U.S. They they were hit hard by COVID. You know, and it's just now it's it's one of the areas of our business that I look at as a growth opportunity because the workforce is shrinking. And we are an alternative to, you know, people because of just of our experience and how we can handle it, how we can run. We come in already with the experience that most people should be or could be looking for, you know, mm-hmm. from, from understanding the structure. So I look at it as a bit of an opportunity for people like us. I had a, a gentleman 10 years ago said to me, you know, when there's chaos, there's opportunity. Absolutely right. You know, when there is this, when the market is disrupted, there is opportunity, even in consolidation. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think it's Warren Buffett who essentially said when it, when everybody else is running scared, that's when I'm doubling down, right, or buying, you know. So it's, it's uh, there's a lot of truth to that. You got to take opportunities where, where opportunities exist. So, Chris, we've got about 10 minutes left. And I'm going to let you discuss what you'd like to discuss. So, you know, there's several things we've covered, but we haven't covered maybe some of the products you guys have in the pipeline. If you want to talk about that, your, you know, what you're doing in India, whatever you'd prefer uh, talking about, I'll, I'll let you talk about. Um, a couple of things that we're working on uh, currently is we're actually look, working on some of our own food brands right now. We see a lot of, there's some white space in the market in understanding kind of what real ingredients look like and the true costs. And we're working in partnership with a very large manufacturer in California that has been um, 
very supportive and looking at opportunities, not just with our products, but some licensed opportunities as well. You know, and we're, we're kind of trying to build out a little own infrastructure and utilizing their capabilities, you know, and, and kind of looking at that white space, trying to make it a little bit easier to work with, being more nimble, quicker to react, trying not to take as long to plan out. You know, we've got a couple of brands already in the pipeline. Development is underway. Uh, unfortunately, development is probably, you know, takes, and, you know, with COVID and everything, it's, you know, we've had people out. But we're, we're still moving forward. So we'll see some interesting kind of organic, vegan type food products coming. Uh, we're also working on a skincare project that we're trying to focus just on what we'll call the off-price channel. And that will be a, a high-end value-driven brand that you'll see on the shelves in TJ Maxx, Ross, Burlington Code Factory, Bell's Outlet, and people like that. So we're we're... You know, you, you, you kind of say, how do you go from food to skincare? And, and the funny thing is that that all could be done under the same factory, you know, yeah. under one roof. Um, different areas, don't get me wrong, it's not running on the same machines. But um, so we're kind of developing that as well. Um, we have some license opportunities that we're working on as we speak with kids and some other things I really can't get into yet. So we, we're still in the beginning stages of that. We're further along, but it's, it's, it should be exciting. One of the areas uh, that I've always wanted to get back into, I started in the textile industry. We've gotten back into the textile industry in a major way. And, and why is that? Because it was, at the time, textiles, you know, whether it was a kitchen towel oven mitt or a, it was a race to the bottom, you know, the cheapest guy and the crappiest product. So... <laughs> Our approach is really right now, and this has just happened the last, you know, three to six months. You know, I've always, you know, we've talked to companies in the textile industry and it's, but we always had, I I personally always had the challenge of how they did things and I could never understand it. Um, There's some good ones out there, don't get me wrong, that's in bedding, that's in kitchen and do a nice job. But if you go from a Kohl's to a Bed Bath Beyond to Walmart, when you look at through through someone like my eyes, it all looks the same. Yes, the green is over here and the purple is up here, but it's the same quality. It's all coming from a lot of the same factories. There's no creativeness. You know, I have one of our partners just she said to me the other day, you know, the industry has really let us down because there's no creativeness in it. Isn't you know, we had the Curie coffee maker, but, you know, they, they created a whole new category. Um, who knew what K-Cups were before Curie came to market? And um, so we're, we're trying to redefine the textile um, category. And yes, that sounds like taking on, you know, trying to climb Mount Everest. And it probably is. Um, but we're taking smaller bites. One of the things that we, I want to bring to the textile industry is, is not just creativeness, it's better products. My parents were here at Christmas and I had a conversation with my mother that all the kitchen towels she has were just garbage. And they are. They don't absorb anything. They're just printed. And I showed her with something that was from one of our factories. And she's like, I mean, she's still raving about her kitchen towels that she got for Christmas. But it's, it's, 
it's just a better quality product, higher price point, get that. But what we're going to bring is we're going to look at what they're currently carrying, look at the white space, create unique designs per retail. Get away from the cookie cutter. My goal would be that each retailer has an assortment of products that represent their consumer. The consumer is female. The consumer is 40 plus. Then you have your younger generation that are much more focused on quality driven, you know, whether it's through anthropology or even if it's through Walmart, you know, just getting a design team that can actually look and actually, you know, scan the pod planogram, currently what they carry, whether it's bedding, kitchen, you know, rugs, pillows, you know, it could be outdoor pillows and, and just provide them with everybody just a unique look. And just kind of give a point of difference because, you know, when you don't go to Walmart to buy a Keurig coffee, you go to Walmart to buy the Keurig coffee. You don't think of Keurig and then think of Walmart second. The brand on the door is the brand that represents what's in the store. The manufacturer's brand is second. You know, Bed Bath was the the best at doing that. They created categories. They put a lot of housework companies on the map. You know, their to me, their biggest issue is when they went to chase Walmart. You know, they brought in lower quality goods. You know, now they're trying to rebrand and they're not sure which way to go. Um, but we're trying to bring an identity per retailer in this category because I think it's important. You know, that representatives, you know, you got Bowling Branch now, it's all organic, soft touch, and the higher end in this part of the textile industry is taken off. There really isn't a retailer outside of maybe Williams-Sonoma that's really focused on the higher end. And we're going to try to move the category up a little bit because yeah. it's, that's where it's headed. No, you're right. I mean, I, I think about you know what you said is the target market and the target market is my wife, right? Uh-huh. Like late 40s. She's got disposable income. She mm-hmm. wants higher quality towels. She wants higher quality bath mats. She wants, you know, she is your target market. And she has a struggle finding the things that she wants, whether it's the quality or the appearance or both. She's not finding it where she's looking. Yeah. And, and part of that is due to because, you know, retailers, you know, it, it's a margin game and they want to hit a price. You know, they want to be the lowest price guy on the street. I give a lot of credit through the pandemic to William Sonoma and their brands. They that's not the where they went. Their business just took off. But you know, everybody everybody still thinks you need to race to the bottom and you don't. The consumer yeah. is willing to spend more money for a better quality product today. You know, the way to really look at it is look at the look at your forget about inflation. Think about even before inflation, everything was normal. Our grocery bill was higher because we were buying better food. Why would you buy better food and not gravitate to doing the same thing for your housewares, for your homewares? You know, the consumer, I look at the food market as being kind of the actual example of where the market is headed. Yeah, no, it, it's I, I've had that conversation from you know from a food standpoint because we do we buy you know we buy stuff at Sprouts or Natural Grocer you know and it and it's more expensive 
we have a daughter who can't have gluten. And so most of what we eat is, is gluten-free anyhow. And it's always all natural, organic type stuff. And then I'll have a conversation with a friend or a family member who doesn't, you know, eat the same way and no judgment, but, or even a client, for example, and we talk about their budget and what they spend on food. And I'm thinking, my gosh, that's like 25% of what we spend, <laughs> you know, because you can get it very cheaply if you forego the, you know, right. those types of ingredients. Well, the American consumer, um, you know, it's kind of funny when I was growing up, there was a, a retailer in Long Island called Sims and way ahead of their time. It was just a men's clothing retailer and size Sims would do a commercial. It always says our educated consumer is our best, our educated customers are best consumer. Well, think about that for a second. We are more educated today than anything. You go walk Sprouts, you go walk Whole Foods, you even go walk Walmart and Target and Kroger, Albertsons. We are label readers. We have yeah. become label readers. And we do it in the food industry. And it's going to gravitate over to the housewares. You know, that's the packaging, you know, we never touched on this. The packaging is one of those things that a lot of companies really don't focus on. It's the silent salesperson. Because you can't ask a store employee, so what's the difference between these two? You have seconds to kind of understand what's the difference between two products. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Chris, I think there's plenty that we could unpack. What I do want to do is kind of revisit this. You tell me whether it's six months, 12 months down the road when you've actually launched some of these products and we can talk about, about them and you know what it's done differently and how you guys are attacking the marketplace. We'd love to have you back for that conversation, but sure. We're getting close. Hopefully within six months. Okay. Well, we'll definitely stay in touch and we'll look forward to having you back to talk about those things as we move forward. Great. Look forward to it. All right. Really appreciate the conversation today, Chris. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.